Well, good morning again. Again, I'm thankful for a warm response. Um, and uh, welcome back for those that were gone last week. Um, man, it's hot, isn't it? Man. Amen. <laughs> yes, it does mean truly. Um, so we're going to be in, uh, in Acts chapter 4 this morning. Um, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. Uh, this is really the second half of, of this scene uh, at the very beginning of Acts, where Peter and John have been proclaiming the gospel. And they have just healed a man who has uh, not been able to walk since birth. He's around 40 years old. Uh, and everyone is astonished and they're praising God uh, but now the disciples are really facing the first uh, uh, really introduction of persecution in the church. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that this morning. Um, my wife and I, we were, we were watching television uh, this week and the Godfather movies were on. And uh, so we ended up watching all three of them. Um, and it's interesting because uh, Vito Corleone, if you have seen the movies, Vito Corleone and Michael Corleone make this statement uh, throughout the series. They say, all I've ever wanted to do is just to protect my family from the horrors of this world. And you realize very quickly that that's not ultimately true. Uh, because that's not the desire that has created this corrupt world in which they live. It's not even the desire to, to become wealthy or the, the desire for, for status. Um, the desire that has created this world is a desire for power and autonomy. Um, the, the more power you have, the more control you have, and the, the more distance that you can create uh, from yourself and feelings of insecurity and, and weakness. Right? Um, it, it's, a, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Uh, survival of the fittest, and you have to have some sense of power, some sense of control in order to get anywhere um, in this life or a career or to be anybody, and, um, or at least a lot of people think that. And so the Godfather is this perfect um, kind of picture of that and how we tend to think of life as a zero-sum game, where if you're not winning, you're what? You're losing, Right? If you're not winning, you're losing. And to really flourish, you've got to have total control. If you have any limitations or face any limitations, that's going to impede your flourishing. The rule of law is limiting to your flourishing. Um, for other people to have more uh, resources and money than, than you have, that is limiting to your flourishing. Uh, for you to, to not have any say in another loved one's um, future, right, because you think that you know better, that, that's limiting. Uh, intimacy in relationships is limiting. Vulnerability is, is limiting. Uh, but let me just say this. If you want power, you probably shouldn't have it. Um, it if, you, if you enjoy having power, once you have it, it's probably for all terrible reasons. And if you have it and you don't want to let it go, it's either because you have no idea that what you have is limited and temporary, or you do know that and you have a fear of losing it. 
If life is a zero-sum game, then it's suddenly you versus everyone else, right? You are opposed to everyone else, and everyone else is opposed to you. That means other people in your family. That means friends, depending on the context. That means God himself, right? The Bible gives us a picture of this, and we see this in Acts chapter 4, where you have opposing kingdoms. It's the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world. And if it's a zero-sum game, you're saying, I'm part of the kingdom of this world. I'm not part of the kingdom of God. So we're going we're gonna to talk about this morning threats to power, even including our own sense of power uh, or perceived sense of power and how that's often met uh, with bitterness and, and conflict. But when Jesus challenges that same power in love, it can be the place of healing and redemption. And then we're going to talk about how we actually face the world in, in light of that, uh, where we live in this world where there are opposing kingdoms. So let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then I'll read the text. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, thank you for meeting with us. Uh, would you change us? Would you transform us by the power of your Spirit and your Word? Amen. Read with me, beginning... Uh, Acts chapter 4 at verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right... In the sight of God, to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So here you have in these first few verses of Acts 4, um, these authorities coming upon Peter and John um, after this man has been healed from his, uh, from his lameness, from his paralysis. Um, and they, they feel that their power has been threatened. Right? It just goes to show you it doesn't take much to, to have your power threatened. It doesn't take an army uh, standing at the gates. It doesn't take a hostile takeover in a boardroom. Right? Do Peter and John seem like they're imposing figures? Do they seem like they're really threatening? Why do these authorities now huddle together and come upon them and throw them in jail and say, don't speak about Jesus and, and the power of Jesus? What are they doing? All they're doing is they're teaching people. They're healing people. Uh, they're proclaiming in Jesus' name the resurrection from the dead. What, what's the big deal? What's the harm? Well, if you think about the context, you see what the big deal is. Um, here are these high priestly family members coming together, and they're thinking teaching the people might show the people that they really don't need us anymore. They're working us out of a job, right? Everything in our culture is built around temple worship. What happens if more people start believing in Jesus? Right? They're, they're, they're not going to need us. Everything that we have, have built and, and, and tried to maintain in this culture, um, everyone under our thumb, all that's going to go away. Things are going to crumble. We're going to lose power. But this really hits home for the Sadducees because they have, in many respects, the furthest to fall. They're the ruling party of the Jews. They're the elite class. They're the wealthy. They're the ones that are in bed with the Romans to to try to secure power and maintain power. And they are anti-supernaturalists. They don't believe in miracles. They do not believe in resurrection from the dead. And the gospel is a threat to them. They must be silenced. Peter and John have got to be silenced. You see it a couple times in in this passage. They say, don't speak. Speak no more of the gospel. Speak no more of Jesus. Because if, if these people like, rise up, right, everyone is in trouble. You don't want to put any ideas in their heads. right? But if, if these miracles are actually happening, and if Jesus actually rose from the dead, then suddenly we, as the elite class, as the ruling class, are going to lose our, all of our credibility. If it's truly the last days and the dead are, ri- are, are being raised from the dead, whatever power that I have had, um, I can just forget about. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. Whatever I've hung my hat on uh, can just go by the wayside. It doesn't matter. So what I'm probably going to do is I'm going to cling on to what I can. If the ship is going down, I'm going to hold fast to what I do have. And that's when persecution comes. Because it's the sense of powerlessness, or at least the fear of powerlessness, that is the source of oppression. And this is true in any context, in any culture, throughout all of history. Right? When you feel powerless, your first reaction is to deny that you're powerless. And then in order to live in that denial, what do you do? You end up turning to others and and dominating them, to control them, to, to oppress them. Because life is a zero-sum game, and if you're not winning, you're losing. And so when you feel the threat to your own power and autonomy coming from other people, or even when you just go through a season of suffering, 
that is out of your control and you feel out of control, it, it makes you see that you're not the person that you thought that you were. That you're not just the parts of you that you put on display that you want others to see. And that can fuel bitterness and resentment and be directed towards others in conflict and oppression. Because we build our lives out of the stories that we tell about ourselves in our heads. But idols of power are not just for the powerful. They're not just for uh, the, the elite. right? We, we all deal with power idolatry. It's all around us. Tim Keller talked about how um, you can pursue power in, in small petty ways like being a a neighborhood bully or a school bully or um, a low-level bureaucrat or um, a, a, a boss uh, that's, uh, that is just mean. Um, so if it's all around us, how, how do we see it show up in our lives? We could spend two hours talking about it, but um, what are just a few things? Um, power idolatry shows up in our pride. Maybe... Um, you're someone who demands respect in an unhealthy way, and people have to walk on eggshells around you, uh, where you have to control uh, relationships by controlling conversations and have to have a say in every single conversation because you know uh, everything, right? Or at least you know the answer to everyone else's problems. Now, this, is, um, this is true in, in abusive relationships, um, it's all abuse is all about power. Maybe you have experienced physical abuse in some regard in your lifetime. Um, maybe you have uh, been in a church context before, uh, where you have faced spiritual abuse from authority figures. Maybe you are the abuser. Uh, maybe um, you're the angry parent um, whose children live in fear of you. Maybe you're an emotional manipulator. That's power idolatry. Power idolatry shows up as we crave approval from others at any cost, as we are status seekers. And, and it shows up where we will, it'll get to the point where we will step over people or we will step on them to get to where we're going. Power idolatry shows up in how you manage your time. You dominate others when everyone else is at the mercy of your schedule. Power idolatry shows up when you feel like you have to have control over every aspect of your life where your, your life looks so manufactured and, and very well manicured that it's not okay to not be okay and you rarely show signs of struggle. And then suddenly you control relationships by controlling the narrative of those relationships and no one can really get to know you in any deep, meaningful way. Power idolatry shows up when you are someone who just wants to live the comfortable life. You can't be bothered with serving. Or if you are, then you'll complain about it. Um, if, you see, if you look through the book of Acts, at the very beginning, especially of the book of Acts, you see these intentional gospel communities start to form where people of all walks of life are coming together unified by salvation in Christ uh, and they're sharing everything in common, right? They're worshiping together. They're eating together. They're sharing their resources together. Well, guess what? Intentional community threatens autonomy, 
But power idolatry also shows up in, in how you try to control your relationship with God. When thinking that you have God under your thumb, uh, that, you know, I, I think that I'm probably good enough or have done enough things for God to accept me. He has to accept me. That's, that's idols of power. Maybe about three or four weeks ago, I was watching a documentary on Mount Everest, and there was this moment of brevity where the narrator said, the number one reason that people die trying to climb Mount Everest is because they try to climb Mount Everest. Because <laughs> people aren't meant to get to the top. Um, you know, the reason that people die is, is not because they're inexperienced or uh, because they lack resources. You have the greatest alpinists in the world with the, the, the most impressive gear dying. Why? Because they're climbing into what they call the death zone. It's this place above a certain altitude where there's so little oxygen and it's so cold that human beings are not meant to live there no matter what. And then you have people that are, are, are walking, maybe you've seen pictures, they're walking this knife edge of a, of a ridge to get to the top of the world. But you saw in, in recent weeks during the climbing season, what a number of people died. Why? Because the death zone was crowded. It was crowded. Look, the struggle for power is a, a climb into the death zone, and it is crowded. You and I were not meant to live an autonomous life. But we've, we've bought into to this promise, or these promises, we can buy into it, that more power promises me more autonomy, which, which promises, uh, promises me more um, freedom, right? But it's not real freedom. It's actually slavery. I, I love this little scene. I think it's in the very first Avengers movie where Loki, um, uh, uh, he, he comes to this people. I think it's just a, a group of Germans that he's coming to oppress. And, and they say, we, no, we don't want to submit to you. We want freedom. He goes, ah, the bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power. You know, and, and he's right. If that pursuit of freedom is outside of the freedom that we have that's possible in Christ, right? Unless you are living for Jesus in submission to him and going after what he desires for you in your life and how he is designed for you to look like as a human being, then that pursuit of freedom is nothing more than an endless climb into the death zone. And you're going to fall victim to it, and you're going to victimize others in your pursuit. Why? Because your ego is going to win out every single time unless it meets its match in the power of Jesus. So let's talk about facing the power of Jesus. If you look at verses 5 through 12, this next section, this is all about Jesus' power. As Peter and John, they're saying, yes, it's by the power of Jesus, it's by the name of Jesus that this man is healed. It's by Jesus' name that these people are coming to faith. This is why we are standing before you. It's because of Jesus and him rising from the dead. When human beings pursue power and autonomy, it communicates, this is my kingdom. But here's the thing. Jesus does not share power and will not share power. He's sovereign. 
His power cannot be threatened. Ever, ever, ever. Ever. <laughs> but He cares about uh, when, when people like us are threatened by other powers that would harm us. Whether that's paralysis or whether that is our own pride. He cares. Because Jesus came to turn right side up, which was upside down about our world, right? He's good. In recent years, Prince William of England has come into to more prominence um, in the media as he's gotten married and he's, he's had children. Um, and some, uh, some British people were interviewed, I think by a, a British magazine, uh, and they, they were asked, what kind of king do you think he's going to be? And it was a consensus. They said, I don't quite know. I just hope that he's a good king. Because in good times, you want a good king uh, to have someone that's going to you know, protect uh, prosperity and flourishing. Um, you, you want someone who's going to not abuse power. Uh, they, that person is sovereign over the citizenry and over land and over the excise of government. In tough times, you want a king to be good uh, so that he will try to increase prosperity, right? Uh, to maintain a certain way of life and, and to, to protect you from uh, the evil that, that would threaten you, any sort of harm. But the king of England doesn't have any real power, does he? He's just a figurehead, right? The real power lies in the elected government and the prime minister, so what does it matter if you're a good king or a bad king if you're not really sovereign? And what, what are Peter and, and John doing? They're saying, look, Jesus is not only sovereign, as you can see in these works, but he's also good. There's real power on display in the power of Jesus through these disciples. It's real power. Why are these disciples facing persecution? It's because they are teaching about Jesus who was raised from the dead. Jesus said himself, what? I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again in three days. right? And he did that. Has anyone else risen from the dead before? Yes. Guess who raised them? Jesus. Right? This is real power. It means that death doesn't have a say over Jesus, and it doesn't have the last word over people like you and me. That's real power. They're being persecuted because thousands of people are coming to faith in Jesus. Their hearts are being changed. Their lives are being changed. There's redemption. There's real transformation. People, you thought they are a lost cause. They are coming to faith. And they're being persecuted for it. They're being persecuted because a man who has never been able to walk is now in his 40s and, and he's been healed simply by hearing the name of Jesus. That is real power. And they can't deny it. So we've seen it. There's evidence. He's standing right here. We can't deny it. And so what does Peter do? Peter, in these middle verses, he quotes Psalm 118, which Marty read a little bit earlier, saying that the only one who could ever fix the upside-downness, the brokenness of this world, you have rejected. You've rejected. The one who has become the cornerstone, you have rejected. He's saying our world is backwards. Right? When, when you hear the New Testament quote a psalm, it's not just quoting a, a snippet. 
It's not just referring to the snippet of that psalm. It refers to the whole psalm. What does Psalm 118 say? It's like, this world looks backwards. Good is being called evil, and evil is being called good. We're in Pride Month. Right now, today, there are celebrations all around the world celebrating gay pride. Good is being called evil. Evil is being called good. I'm not just picking on that one issue, but it's all around us. Peter knows it. John knows it. We know it. It's madness. But what else does Psalm 118 say? But even despite all that, despite the madness, despite the brokenness, despite the persecution that that you face, when you feel surrounded by the nations, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It can't be stopped. God has come in the flesh to make this world right because His steadfast love endures forever. He challenges the kingdoms that we have established in our own sin and our own ignorance by showing us His grace and mercy because His steadfast love endures forever. He breaks the power of sin that corrupts our bodies, that causes us to be lame, that corrupts our world, that causes institutions to be broken, that corrupts our hearts, that causes us to sin because His steadfast love endures forever. As we read, Psalm 118, verses 6 and 7 say that when you feel oppression from evil coming around you, bombarding you from the outside and within, you can say, what can man do to me? What can anybody do to me? Because the Lord is a helper who comes to my aid because the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And there is salvation in no one else other than Jesus because He's sovereign and He's good And His love endures forever. What Peter says is that now we can either we can either submit to you or we can submit to Him. He's saying we can either reject God or we can submit to Him. That's what Bob Dylan sang about, right? It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. But when Jesus challenges our own sense of power and autonomy in His love, we start to see that we're not the people that, that we thought that we were. Right? We're not just the parts of ourselves that, that we want to put on display and we want others to see. And guess what that does? That makes us feel weak. Right? Doesn't that make you feel weak? If Jesus is in total control, guess who's not in control? Me. And I want to push against that feeling of weakness. I don't want to believe those things about myself. But, but what happens? We, again, we, we read it. 2 Corinthians 12. The Lord comes to Peter, or excuse me, comes to Paul. And he is feeling weakness. And he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Boast in weaknesses? What? Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The grace of Jesus heals our will to power. Right? When we face 
um, our, our sense of powerlessness. We want to deny it. We want to dominate others. We want to control others. We want to oppress others. But Jesus gives us a new way by his grace and his love because he's our Savior. Keller, Tim Keller says, It's only by admitting our sin, need, and powerlessness and by casting ourselves on his mercy that we will finally become secure in his love and therefore empowered in a way that does not lead us to oppress others. And the insecurity is gone and the lust for power is cut at its root. So if power and autonomy is not the way it's supposed to be in this life, then how can the world start to look right? When will it start to look like it's supposed to look, like God designed it? How can oppression of people groups cease? How can political corruption be stopped? How can the dignity of life from conception to death be upheld? How can systematic racism end? How can Tucson embody a community where people really care about one another, really serve one another, that work towards real peace and real justice? We can ask, how can I be a less controlling person and more servant-hearted, more vulnerable? How can I become less angry and more loving? It all happens the same way. It only happens when the power of Jesus changes hearts. There is salvation in no other. But, but when Jesus changes our hearts, it's not just a one-time thing, right? He, he brings us to himself. He brings us from, from death to life. But then when does he stop transforming us? The day that you see Jesus face to face. He is still working on us. Praise God He is. So, okay, so how do we face the world, given this? How do we face the world? Because as Christians, we live as people uh, who have been changed by the hope of Jesus and the hope of, of the age to come that's been ushered in by the resurrection of Jesus, right? But we also live as people that live in a present age where everybody and their mom is opposed, directly opposed, to the kingdom of God. How do we do it? Let me, let me do a couple things. Let me, let me give us two challenges, two encouragements, and then two opportunities. Here are two, cha- two challenges. First, a personal challenge. There's the challenge of submitting ourselves to Jesus' authority and his care so we can look like the people that he has made us to look like. Right In verse 19, what does Peter say? Peter says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than, than to God, you must judge. We can't speak of what we, have, but what we have seen and heard. Peter is saying, and maybe in your version of Scripture it says this, he says, we must follow God and not man. We must follow God. We must submit to Him. Because the devil goes around prowling like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He goes after the ones that distance themselves from the herd, Right? And nothing um, instills the sense of isolation from community like living and pursuing an autonomous life. Because everything around us, everything around us about our culture, um, you can't escape it. It, it. it says, go after what you desire. Do your own thing. You do you. Live your truth. So how do you combat this? Because you can't be your own doctor. You can't be your own physician. How do you combat it? You need people close to you 
who can honestly and lovingly call you out on all your junk. Right? This is why you as Desert Springs, you need to, to desperately and intimately know one another. You have to. It's a struggle for survival. It's a struggle for, for flourishing. But you also have to be people, and I, I've got to be the person, and we have to, um, uh, to invite people into um, a, um, a, a community, a safe space where others and we ourselves can feel the freedom to feel powerless while living in the grace of Jesus. Don Corleone in The Godfather, he told his boy Sonny, he said, never let anybody know what you're thinking. It's weakness. And maybe you've heard a version of that, like don't let anybody ever see you struggle. Well, then who's safe? Who can you trust? How do you grow? We need each other because the Lord is not done chiseling away the rough places of our lives. He's going to continue to transform us into the image of Christ that he wants us to become. Okay, so that's a personal challenge. Here's a challenge for us as Christians. Um, Because here in Acts 4, this is the the very beginning of persecution of the church. And it's not getting any easier to be a Christian in this world. The only reason that we have not faced more persecution in this country is simply the mercy of God. Um, it's, uh, it's not because this country was founded on such solid Christian morals. Right? A lot of our founding fathers were deists with libertarian minds who wanted nothing more than just autonomy and power. The reason that Christians around the world, like in places like China and North Korea and, and other thousands of places, the reason they face such harsh persecution uh, is, is not because their cultures lack a democratic system of government. It's because human beings, by nature, are corrupt individuals who are rebels against God's kingdom who crave power and autonomy and will squash anybody and anything that gets in their way. You know, many, many of these people, um, well, everybody in the book of Acts who, uh, who was uh, saved by, by the power of Jesus, they came to faith, and then, as we in the South like to say, um, they were... Uh, set on fire for Jesus. Um, they, just, they, were, they were elated to live in the joy and grace and mercy of Christ and to be part of these intimate communities. But for many of these people, it just was a few short years later when they would literally be set on fire for Jesus. Because the gospel challenges, it threatens established power structures. And you have to know that. Okay, in light of that, two encouragements. Be encouraged by this. Persecution is the result of fear. And you see that here in Acts 4. It's the result of fear. It's fear of losing power, control, autonomy. Like, if the resurrection is not true, then we're the people that should live in fear. Or to be pitied. But the resurrection is true. So now what? We live in hope. Because King Jesus doesn't share 
power and he's sovereign and he's good and his love endures forever for you and for me. Be encouraged. Also be encouraged by this. The gospel has always and will always change people and change the world. Always. Martin Luther King Jr. in his uh, letter from Birmingham jail, he said, The early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. In verses 20 and 21 here, the disciples, they say, we have seen the gospel at work. We've seen the power of Jesus. We, we, have, we have experienced it. We, we know the power in our own lives. We have seen Jesus die and be raised from the dead. We have seen lives and hearts change. We've seen blind men see. We've seen lame men walk. You can see that too. He's standing in front of you. We can only speak about what we know and what we've heard and what we've seen. And what what happens with the people? They're praising God because of it. The authorities are living in fear because people are saying, this is real, we're praising God. There's this theme that runs throughout all of Acts. And you see this in these little summary passages. And we have one in Acts 4, verse 4. It says, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. You see this several times. I think it's seven times in Acts where it says that even despite all the persecution that's going on in the church, it says the church grew in numbers. People were coming to faith. You know the very last word in the book of Acts, what it is? Maybe your version, it may be um, a a different word, or maybe the word is moved up. But in the Greek, it's the word uh, akolutos. I know that that one's free. Um, It's the word unhindered, without hindrance, that the gospel through his disciples, that the gospel of Jesus has gone out and continues to go out without hindrance. It will change lives. It will change the world because Jesus says, I'm with you to the very end. Okay, two opportunities and we'll be done. We have an opportunity to pray. And I'm not talking about prayers like praying that a certain justice gets on a federal court. I'm not even talking about praying about that lady that's walking into a clinic to get an abortion that she would not kill her baby. Those are small prayers. Can I say that? Those are small prayers. I'm not saying they're not important. They're small. They're small. We have a big God that wants to hear from us, that can do anything, that can create something out of nothing in an instant. We need to pray for God to bring life where there was death. We need to pray for lame men to to stand up and walk and to run around and to dance and to skip. God can do that. We need to pray for people just simply to come to faith in Jesus. Think about how this world would change. How our communities would change. How our families would change. If we just prayed, if our only prayer was, Lord, would you continue to change me? And Lord, would you change other people's hearts that they would come to faith in Jesus? That's how revivals get started. Those are big prayers. Bring life where there was death. 
but here, here's the second opportunity for us. The character that, w- that we are designed to embody, it doesn't come by way of exercising some sort of moral body, but it comes by way of giving ourselves away like Christ. That we, and here's what I mean by that. When we invite others into our lives in intimate ways to share life with us, seeing all the good, the bad, and the ugly, it creates these opportunities for the gospel to be put on display where others can taste and see that the Lord is good. Where they can, they can see our lives and see our community, to see our fellowship, and that they would see Jesus, where, where they can feel the freedom of a life where you are unburdened by the climb into the death zone of autonomy. And when we do that, when we embody that as a people, our lives change, our communities change, and this world will change because the gospel changes people. He is king, he is sovereign, he is good, and he loves us. We need to share that with people. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you that you are um, good. You're so good you gave your son uh, to come and live and die and be raised again for us. Lord Jesus, you ascended into heaven and you promised you would return. Until that time, you gave us your spirit to transform us into your image. We know that one day, someday is coming when you will come to set everything right. There'll be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more persecution, no more fights for power and autonomy. Uh, Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord, whether they are your enemy or whether they are your loved one. And we thank you that you have called us to be sons and daughters. Lord, would, um, would we rejoice in that reality? For your sake, we pray this. Amen.